The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, it's Jesse. We're honoring the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today in the United States. We hope you enjoy this episode from the archives. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Some people think creativity is static. You're either born creative or you're not. But I disagree. I think of creativity as a muscle that you can strengthen. Sure, some people are born preternaturally fit, but we all can do a lot to get a lot stronger. And that's important because whether you're a writer or a hotel staffer or a doctor, your ability to come up with new ideas will define your success and your potential in your future career. Today's guest is Natalie Nixon. She's like a personal trainer for your creativity muscle. Natalie has a PhD in design management, and she's written a book called The Creativity Leap. She has practical advice on how to improve your focus, how to take smart chances, and how to hone your curiosity. In short, Natalie thinks that you can be more creative. Here's Natalie. We're talking about really this balance between audacity and intentionality. And if I could just kind of jump right to it, the way I'm defining creativity is that it's our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And I think now more than ever, it's a truly VUCA environment that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It's creativity that's going to be the tool and the compass to to navigate these times. You know, so often our hardest moments, our hardest economic moments, our hardest societal moments give birth to our biggest, newest, most creative ideas, only you don't know it when it's happening, right? But when it's happening, sometimes it just feels like the opposite of creative. You feel constrained, tired, the world becomes smaller. And I think for a lot of people this year during the pandemic, that's really true. Sometimes creativity feels like a luxury of time and resources. One of the things I think we really need to do and that I was hoping to do by riding the creativity leap is to pull back the veil from creativity. We have really romanticized it. We do treat it as a luxury. We do treat it as an addendum, a something I'll get to when I have more time, when I have the freedom to be as prosaic as as our idealized artists. And what's happened is that we have ghettoized creativity in the arts And that's not fair to artists, and it's not beneficial to our society at large because artists are actually excellent at creating space and time for both the wonder and the rigor. And I have to say, Jesse, that a podcast interview that you did on Hello Monday with Laura Linney really stuck with me. And I loved a moment when she was explaining the work process that she and her her actor colleagues go through where everything starts out rainbows and roses. And then invariably you hit a wall. And she talked about sitting with that discomfort. Creativity loves mess. (laughs) Creativity thrives in mess. And these are really messy times. And so that's why we all have to exercise our creative competency. She spoke to something that anybody who's ever tried to create anything can identify with. 
And that is that before you get to the big breakthrough or the thing that you make, there's this long period where you feel kind of awful, for lack of a better phrase, where you feel like you can't do it, where it all seems messy and confusing and you have to muddle through. And to the outside observer, this may look like a mess. But what I really liked about your approach to thinking about creativity is that you see in this a system, something that's replicatable and something that you can get better at. So I want you to tell us about that. Absolutely. So yeah, it's much more about being equipped to fall in love with process versus being solutions-based and solutions-oriented. And and just before I, I delve into that a bit more, I just, I just want to also add that one of the things I always remind people when I talk about the rigor component of creativity, which in rigor is about time on task, discipline, deep focus, skill development, it's not sexy. And it's often very solitary work. And it is absolutely essential. And I, and I wanted to make sure that we understood that component of creativity uh, so that we realize creativity isn't pulling something willy-nilly out of your armpit. It's it's not like there are these gifted, special folks. You know, they work really hard at it. Yeah, but the process of exercising creativity, um, I'm a nerd. I love frameworks. Um, and so I thought it's not enough to just say, okay, guys, toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And, and that's creativity. In my view, we can exercise and cultivate creativity through what I call the three eyes. And those three eyes are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. Inquiry is curiosity. It's it's learning how to ask new, better, and different questions. Being improvisational means that you're adaptive, that you embrace the the build on other people's ideas, uh, that you are able to, you're much more equipped to anticipate what's next. And intuition, in my view, is about pattern recognition. It's that internal nudge. Sometimes I call intuition brain feelings. And I'm a former academic, and academia is definitely a place where we really try to err on the side of what's rational. And I remember as I was building my business that I was really shy sometimes about venturing into this realm of intuition until I observed that really successful leaders, especially really successful startup leaders in their origin stories, there's always this moment that they'll reference where something told me not to do the deal. Something told me to work with her over him. And we don't talk about intuition in business school, medical school, law school, yet every successful leader really reckons with incorporating, acting on their intuition to make decisions. I love that you embrace intuition so fully. And it comes up often on Hello Monday and often with very substantial business leaders. I just sat down with Mark Benioff and he credited his intuition for part of his success. But one of my favorite intuition stories is actually Angela Arendt's. And Angela is a fearless corporate leader. She means business. She worked in fashion, began her career in fashion, rose to become the CEO of Burberry, turned Burberry around, saved the company, and then left fashion altogether and went to Apple, where she was the highest paid woman at Apple for years. And when I sat down with her and was like, how'd you do it? Her answer was intuition Yep, over everything else. Yes, absolutely. And her ability to uh, reinvent. Maybe in hindsight, it's less about reinvention 
and it's more about, you know, following the breadcrumbs. It's much more about the build. And in the moment, especially to others, it may seem like a total departure. I share a story in my book about how as a sophomore in college, I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I wanted to choose the right major and get a good J-O-B at the end of a very amazing and expensive education. And um, I struggled and I called home with my first world problem in tears and said, I don't know what I should study. Parents listened to me patiently. They said, what are you really enjoying? I apologetically explained what I was failing at. They said, what do you like? And when I really unpacked what I was enjoying, cultural anthropology, Africana studies, they said, that's what you should study. And my dad said, you will have to turn down opportunities. Because when you study what you love, when you're doing what you love, no one has to tell you to get up earlier, work longer. And it was this load that lifted off my shoulders. And I and I tell people now that following our hearts, uh, paying attention to that intuition is actually a much more efficient way to live. And as a solidly middle-aged woman, I, I know that for sure. Uh, you, you take your medicine now or you take it later. That's sort of what middle age has taught me too. I love yes. how you frame that. I want to talk more about intuition, but first let's unpack the other two eyes a little bit. Start with inquiry, curiosity. I hope that you can prove me wrong, but I am of the opinion that people are either curious or they are not. Do you agree? When we were all children, asking questions was our modus operandi for discovery, for experimentation, to understand boundaries, to understand uh, status, to understand order and patterns. And in too many environments, we treat curiosity in a much more punitive way. And so it really squashes that. And, and we don't want to appear ignorant. But guess what? If you ask a question, so what? You don't know the answer to the question. You don't know the answer to whatever you're exploring. And so I believe it's actually, as Warren Berger says, a way of thinking. And it's something that we can get better at if, we, if it's first brought to our attention that we actually aren't asking new, different questions. Another way we can get better at asking questions is through cognitive diversity. It's by ensuring that we're working with people who are different from us, who have different backgrounds, who have different life experiences, who have different skill sets, because they will look at the same problem from a totally different angle. They will also cause a lot more self-reflexive questioning of ourselves. So why do I think about it in this way? Why have I always gone about it in X way instead of Y way? So in my opinion, at this stage, I really do think that curiosity is learned behavior. Well, even as as you're saying that, I'm thinking through the many times in my life when I actually don't feel permission to not know. I mean, even in my work life, there are times when I think, well, I should know that. And so I'm not going to ask that. So two quick examples. I was on a call with a corporate client today and there was this three letter abbreviation that I thought I probably should know. I have no idea what they're talking about. So then I just said, I'm just, I'm going to practice what I presume was going to ask. What, what does this mean? I asked what it meant and they all kind of chuckled, rolled their eyes and then explained what it was. And it wasn't something that was obvious. Right. And what I find is that every time I ask a question, again, it's learned behavior. I'm, I'm honing a muscle just like we were, we were talking about intuition and I'm, I'm getting better at that courage. The other short example anecdote I'll, I'll share is I went to high school in Philly 
at a wonderful and elite Quaker prep school. And I started there in seventh grade. And I went from being an A student to like a B minus C plus student in part, not because I suddenly wasn't as smart as I used to be, but because the culture of learning was so different. Around eighth grade, I, I wasn't able to articulate the way I'm articulating it now. But I realized that in public school, I was really being geared up to fill in the dots. I had gotten excellent at delivering to the teacher what they wanted. And all of a sudden, I was in an environment where the rules were so different. It was about asking a better and different question. And I remember being in 11th grade physics. Physics was not my jam, but I, of course, uh, wanted to take the harder physics class. And I would always hesitate to raise my hand until I had so I was sure I had the answer by then, it, you know, the teacher had gone on to something else. But I learned from the bombastic boys in the back who would be loud and wrong, who would just call out, belt out an answer, ask a question. It was actually through the audacity of white male culture that I, as a black as a, as a, as a black girl, teenager, now black woman, you know, I, 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 I always say that one of my superpowers as a black woman is that I'm a boundary spanner. There have been so many instances in my life and my work where because I'm the only one, one of a few in the room, I've gained perspective and it's given me keen skills and observation. I used to really resent it until my thirties when I realized, hey, this is actually an incredible vantage point I have better EQ, I have to be more politically savvy, I'm more observant, et cetera. But it was those moments where I was observing the way other people use asking questions to their advantage. And the world didn't end. You know, they right. weren't they weren't scorned and, and, and shuttered off to the side. So those are ways that I've developed that muscle. I want to take one moment on that that realization that you had, because it's really it, it is a superpower that when you are the white man in the room, you only ever have to know how your system works. It's the only one you ever have to know. And wherever you are in your ladder of privilege, in order to succeed in the system that you've landed, you have to understand your experience and the experiences of everyone above you on the ladder. Looking at it one way, it could be frustrating and exhausting. And this year has been a year of conversations about that. And those are important conversations. Looked at another way, it is also a superpower for many people. Yeah. And whatever your position of marginality is, flip that, convert that. And that's something that I learned to do. It really shifted for me in my 30s. In my 20s, I had my hands on my hips a lot. I could easily get frustrated. But I had an incredible gift of a professional chapter where I lived and worked in Sri Lanka. I, I worked in the fashion industry. I have a background in anthropology and fashion. And in fashion, I was first an entrepreneurial hat designer. And then I worked in global sourcing and had this incredible opportunity where I was living in Colombo, making bras and panties for Victoria's Secret. But I would be in meetings where these dynamo Southeast Asian women who would be the heads, directors of these divisions and of these companies. And we would have buyers and teams from typically from the States come in for meetings. And I was low on, on the rung, but I just absorbed so much 
of kind of the subversive acts that they did of of converting people's assumptions about them and landing the deal in ways that I I realized the 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 guest buyers had no idea how the conversation was being shaped and shifted and they would show up in their saris or they would I, if I would be in Hong Kong they would show up you know, dressed to the nines and really cool funky avant-garde fashion but be in, be totally themselves and totally in control ultimately of the narrative and that was a huge education for me and they were in control of the narrative because they understood what it meant to be themselves but they also understood who they needed to be to succeed with whoever they were negotiating with yes and they understood others perception of themselves right like that's huge it, right it's huge like du bois talked about the double consciousness of African Americans, and there, and in some ways, it can be very tiring. My husband and I sometimes refer to it as the black tax, as as Black Americans. On the other hand, it it cultivates an incredible agility and adaptiveness to be able to understand multiple perspectives, to anticipate, to be incredibly strategic, and so that's what I was seeing from from their cultural perspective. And I saw it, it was a mirror back to me of how I could really use all of these sorts of experiences I've had as an asset. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Natalie tells us how she learned about flexible and improvisational systems in an unlikely place, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. My guest today is Natalie Nixon, author of The Creativity Leap. I asked her to explain improvisation to us, and we ended up talking about the flexibility of one of the world's high-end hotel chains. All improvisational systems are adaptive, emergent, and self-organizing. And I really got hip to this much more academic-y way of thinking about improv, completing a PhD while working full-time. I did my PhD while I was a professor uh, in the field of design management. And I ended up studying and looking at the ways the Ritz-Carlton Hotel designs and delivers experiences for its guests. It turns out that the Ritz-Carlton is an incredibly improvisational organization. They work within fluid, limber, nimble structures. And we see that in jazz music. I'll give two short examples. One example is, so the Ritz-Carlton motto is, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And I will be quite honest and, and tell you that, you know, the research process is a very chaotic, loopy process. And you think you're going in one direction, you end up going in a totally different direction. And my husband and I have this phrase we, we use called the law of momentum. You keep going through the door that that's opened. And the way I landed um, working with the Ritz-Carlton's, they kept opening the door. So to my surprise, I thought they were going to be this really snooty, super rigid sort of organization. And then they were the opposite. They were super transparent. They're like, sure, sit in on this meeting. Sure, visit this person. And it was open door, open door, open door. Well, at the Ritz-Carlton organization, 
every employee, whether you are a maid, an engineer working in the boiler room in the basement, uh, the, the head of the house manager, you are given about, I don't, I'm messing this number up, but about 2000 US dollars to delight a guest. If there's ever any sort of problem that you come into contact with the guest, you have the permission and the the runway to delight them, to ensure that their that their stay is is nice. And so that's an example of a nimble, fluid structure and being able to be improvisational because you don't have this permission slip culture. You can in the moment adapt, be emergent, and self-organize and figure out how to resolve this problem. Another example is at every property, everywhere around the world, every day, each team um, has a short meeting. And one of the things they discuss are something they call Mr. Bivs, which is a mnemonic, which stands for mistakes, revisions, breakdowns, inefficiencies, and variations. So that's the framework. And what they're doing by reviewing mistakes on a daily basis is they're normalizing experimentation, mistakes, asking forgiveness, not permission. And the team itself will, will share how to troubleshoot. So those are two examples of the ways that the Ritz-Carlton is improvisational. So when I think about being improvisational, I was a French horn player and quite serious about it in my earlier life. But the place that I always would fall down was any anything that lent itself toward the improvisational. And it wasn't because I didn't understand the rules. It was a complete lack of confidence. And I have to imagine that lack of confidence travels into every domain. And I'm wondering how you address it. I love etymology. So if you break down that word confidence, confido, with faith, right? We build confidence through trying, through practice. We build that faith in ourselves. Even if I fall, I'll be able to get up and figure it out again. And what I find, again, in our educational systems, in a lot of our work environments, we actually don't give that wiggle room in space to mess up, to try, to fall in love with process versus the solution. Right now, I am a clumsy student of ballroom dance. I'm taking lessons. And with each time I show up again, I am building that confidence and that muscle memory and that and that that knowledge that I've been here before. I know that, you know, when I stepped on my partner's foot the last time, you know, we laughed at ourselves and, and we kept it moving. The other thing that that helps me with is actually practicing those three eyes. I get better at asking new and different questions in order to understand what I'm doing incorrectly. I am being much more improvisational because I'm just getting out there, especially in something like the tango, of really going with the flow. And I'm following my intuition, those nudges that are telling me to lean in a bit more, go left, not right. So I think in my experience that that confidence happens as, as, as a matter of habit. When we talk about those light bulb moments when ideas suddenly emerge, we've got to allow the neurosynapses of our brain to be activated in all the different areas. And if we're only focused on one sort of work, that can't possibly happen. We're actually cutting ourselves off at the knees in order to truly be creative. So going for a walk, um, going for a run, cooking, daydreaming, 
in my case, dancing, it's activating these other neural synapses. And when I return to that deeper focus work, I find that I have a bit more ease to fall into that because I am toggling. I'm doing that kind of toggling I talked about before. You know, there is a school of thought that says that creativity is more pronounced when we're young. In fact, I had a guy on the show, Arthur Brooks, who believed that people max out on their best ideas around the late 30s and early 40s. What do you think about creativity and youth? So I'm personally of the mindset that the 20s suck. Gosh, <laughs> I, I so agree. <laughs> and I, I think they do because I think we have so many great ideas in our 20s. I agree that we have great ideas. We really don't know how to execute on them. We also don't have enough people who take us truly seriously. And so perhaps what is happening is that a lot of that is marinating. It's remaining a bit dormant. But maybe one of the reasons why Mr. Brooks is saying that we are less creative as we're getting older is because creativity loves mess. And there is something that can happen as we age where we can get a little too confident, that surety that we just didn't have when we were younger. So I wonder, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder if it's less about we're not as creative or we have zapped away the conditions that allow us to be creative, more of that, that openness. And sometimes those opportunities await us and we ignore them. I think too, we start to have responsibility is that at least make us think that we need to make a certain amount of money and we need to follow a safe path. And disrupting that becomes scarier and scarier for a lot of people. Absolutely. And and with if nothing else, I really do think so many of us are realizing that the COVID quarantine has revealed that things were ne never really that certain, right? Yeah. It's just that all of a sudden this ginormous pandemic interrupted life. And now yeah. the silver lining is we get to redesign our relationship with time. We get to redesign our relationship with ourselves. And all of us, I think on a daily basis, and not throughout the whole day, maybe, but different moments are improvising. We are learning to ask new and different questions. We're having to follow our gut and our intuition. Well, so many of Hello Monday's listeners, and they, they write and they join us on office hours they they haven't had a choice. It's not like they asked for anything to be disrupted, lost a job, lost an entire company, an industry, and they're having to figure out how how to do something different. Yes. And uh, I know that that's a really hard and dark and scary place to be. And kind of to bring it back full circle to the to the top of our conversation, I also know that it's in those moments of darkness and isolation that the most incredible breakthroughs and opportunities can happen. I want to bring us full circle and ask what you hope people take from the creativity leap. What I hope people take from the creativity leap is both inspiration and practical guidance. For me, I I am a nerd. I, I think in real big picture concepts and the high praise for me about the creativity leap and, and my approach 
to coaching people and to consulting people is that I strike this balance between inspiring them and offering them practical, tactical steps. For example, the end of each chapter of this book ends with a creativity leap tip for an individual and for an organization. But times such as this, days of uncertainty like this require us to be creative. Creativity is not a luxury. It is absolutely the most practical competency that we can develop right now. These are the times for us to amplify and accentuate what it means to be uniquely human. And for me, we're put on this earth to be creative. That was Natalie Nixon. You can learn more about her work at figureatethinking.com. Working on this episode really got the Hello Monday crew thinking about how we activate different areas of our brains. You know, shake things up. Sarah, our producer Sarah Storm, takes long walks. She's trying to grow plants, even though she doesn't really know much about them. And me, well, I like to take a run when I can. I play games with my kid. I do things I don't know how to do. So we want to know from you, what do you do to stoke your own creativity? How do you leave yourself a little room to think outside the box? Join me and Sarah this week for office hours. Bring a tip or any story you want to share. We'll convene, as usual, Wednesday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern. To join us, follow me on LinkedIn or email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com. That's hellomonday at linkedin.com. And let's talk about reviews for a second. I want to bring on our producer here, Sarah Storm. Sarah, you know how much the reviews help the show. Hey, yeah, they're a big deal. And we want to thank people who are leaving them. So every few episodes, we're going to read one. If it's yours, email me. I'll jump on the phone with you. I'll give you a free consult on your LinkedIn profile. Anyhow, Sarah, who have we got? Today's review comes from Lizzie Klein. She says, Jessie's compassionate and insightful questions evoke wonderful insights from her guests and make me feel like I'm in the room. Oh, Lizzie. Oh, Lizzie. So, Lizzie, if you're listening, email us at hellomonday@linkedin.com. And reviews really do make a difference. So... Dear listener, if you like the show, please take a moment to weigh in on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Maybe we'll read your review next time. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Riando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. The Hello Monday team turns our work week into jazz always. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>